Attention, citizens, it's time for Super Pulp Science. This is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. Today, I'm here with my long-suffering co-host, Justin Curry, known the world over as Chasing Artwork, and George McHale, writer, comic book maker, all-around good guy. Uh, I'm Gregory Kamichuk, and this is Super Pulp Science. Thanks for being on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. When you're working full script... Uh, and you're working with an artist, it can be pretty common that an artist's vision of how an action beat or a page turn is different than your version of that same thing. How do you deal with those changes and what is uh, your process for those kinds of situations? Well, it really depends on on what the change is. If it's if it's making the, the story better, then sometimes I roll with it. Sometimes like I'll, I'll describe something and I've had it where the artist has like totally misinterpreted what I said and it's kind of better. And I'm like, all right, let's go with that. <laughs> and, uh, and just like, let just roll with it. And other times it's like, no, that's not what I meant. That doesn't make sense for, for the story. Can you, I'm sorry, I didn't describe it better. Can you go back and, and change it? But I always try and get all those changes made out in the, in the layouts or the roughs kind of section of the development of the, of the art. Cause I, I, just feel like such a dirt bay when there's any like finished artwork and asking for changes at that point right sure so I, I really try and be mindful of my artist's time yeah and i think um if someone is worried about that and they're listening to this um a really important thing to remember is one verb per panel is all that you can ask one character can perform one verb per panel of any comic and anytime there's more than one action that you're giving in the description the artist is going to have to choose which one to show. And that's where those conversations are going to happen. Well, and I also think as a reader, when there's multiple actions happening in the same panel, that reader is going to miss something. There's not really much point in doing that. Yeah. But I mean, it can be a common, like people who have a background in film or uh, have written plays or written script formats in other media who are now making an adjustment into comics. I find that to be a pretty common uh, pretty common occurrence because, you know, in a set direction, an actor can cross the stage, pick up a cup and then deliver their line. But that's three actions on a comics page, right? That's three panels. It's not one panel, which is um, part of that adjustment of the media. Um, yeah, the cool thing about that is that like there's gutter time, right? Like the space in between the panels that is like an implied action. And so to be aware of that and like, what can your characters do that you don't actually need to show? Right. So if you show them, you know, uh, pulling a cup out of the uh, cupboard in one panel and then they're drinking tea in the next one, the reader can imply that they've boiled a pot of water and poured that cup of tea in between the panels. And so you don't need to have every single action out there on the page. Right. The other great thing about the gutter time that space between panels is that you have that to play with when you're um, setting up action beats and your comics have a lot of action. Like resilient is just like a nonstop action movie moments, like all through the story um, cover of darkness. You build a little bit more suspense, but there's a few action payoffs. You know, there's a few, <laughs> you're raising your eyebrows. Yeah. There's a few uh, uh, twists and turns along the way. Is there a difference for you to use that gutter space between action or horror? And how do you think about that? My favorite and the ultimate kind of gutter space would be like the page turn reveal, right? And I didn't really know about this when I first started writing comics. And it kind of came to me as this, it's like that page turn is a big opportunity to have something dramatic happen in your story. And that's kind of the ultimate is like, you leave with the you know, the suspense on the on the odd number pages, and then on the even number, that's when you give your payoff. And it's it's such a good tool for horror, especially because you know you've got your suspense, your suspense, your suspense, and then you turn that page, and oh my god, I can't believe that's happening. Absolutely. When I'm doing layouts, I think uh, what I often do is I will do the page layout, and I'll write panel one of every page a little A beside it because panel one of every page should be the answer 
to the last page's page turn, where I'll put a question mark. So on a two-page spread, the last panel of a two-page spread is a little question mark. You're building up to this question along two pages. And then when you turn that page, the answer to those two pages is the first panel of your next layout, is how I think about that space and time in comics. So with Cover of Darkness, we've got five characters, five main characters um, on different journeys. And so we give them like each like four pages an issue. And so we write in four page chunks. And so we have uh, a setup and a reveal and then a setup and a reveal later. And so it's just, it's, it's very quick moving story that way. And that there's a lot going on and there's a lot to, uh, to digest uh, and, and so much action and horror in the series it's really like horror meets fantasy so you get kind of the both of like action and and horror one thing i wished i had been more um had more practice in when i was working on midnight city which is uh for those who've never heard of it it's a three graphic novel series it's pulp era golden age characters um, many of them from the public domain uh, versus H.P. Lovecraft and H.G. Wells' Monsters. So it's basically taking everything I love from the 30s and 40s that was in publishing that you're allowed to use now and putting them all in the same kind of universe. Uh, mystery men and women who face real evil for the first time and it doesn't go well. I used to joke that it was two great tastes that taste great together. You know, this old idea. <laughs> what I wish I had known more about was how to structure the writing of an ensemble cast because I had an ensemble cast and I was kind of letting the muse switch me between them. And then it meant that the structure of each collection um, often had an unbalanced focus on one character that was not intentional. You know, it wasn't my intention that in the, in that specific issue that there was supposed to be a focus on this character, but it turned out that way when you were broke, when they were broken up into the individual issues. Um, so what advice can you give for writing an ensemble cast? Is it just dividing the pages equally and giving them that amount of time? Well, I have a co-writer on Cover of Darkness, uh, Chris Cam. And so we have our own characters that uh, we write within the world and we want to have our time to shine right so we we have to balance it so that's just the way that we work um i i think it, it makes for a good read you know you have a balanced thing like if you think of like a tv show like game of thrones um it would bounce around through the different characters on their story arc and uh and it was entertaining and engaging and and i think like because you got to keep in mind that every reader will have like a different favorite character and so you want to satisfy who they're looking to read most of, you know, in each each chunk. You know, definitely we focus on on different characters and different like they'll have like different spotlight issues where you know something big happens in their story. So we've tried to space that out so that not not everything big is happening on the last issue. And so we have things throughout the series. One good place if people are looking for a good example in comics of a long-running story with an ensemble cast for sure would be Chris Claremont's run on the X-Men um, in the 90s. Just before the Jim Lee explosion and the Image Comics launched, there was a time where there was an A story, a B story, and a C story in every issue of the X-Men that allowed... Um, the main characters to switch position over the course of three or four issues. Every three or four issues, there's this beautiful transition as to who's in the front of the story. And it feels so, it feels so genuine without being forced. But then when you break it down, if you go back and you actually like deconstruct the individual page counts, you can see that it's like 10 pages for the main story, uh, five pages for the B story and two pages or three pages for that C story, just dropping hints and, and whatever. The real skill is threading an interesting single issue through all of that structure. And I think that's something that you can only do with practice. And, you know, Chris Claremont, whether you like his writing or you don't like his writing, um, you have to celebrate that ability to manage so many characters over a decade. What? Comic book. Oh, it's a comic book. Comic book. My kids love these things. I love them too. 
we really made a point to plot out our series. So we had, we're, we're releasing it as um, three six issue mini series. Um, but overall, it's like, and each one has its own kind of beginning, middle, and end. But it's telling one grand story altogether. And we we got together uh, with my co-writer and I with you know uh, poster boards and post-it notes, and we made grids and who are these characters? Where are they going? Uh, how do they feel emotionally to what's happening to them? But also like what is physically happening? What's the plot of the story? And we mapped out like this. You know, it kind of looks like a crazy person put it together, <laughs> but but it made sense to us. And we tried to space out our big moments for the different characters so that A, every issue is interesting and B, it, it, it's telling a, a, a complete story. Well, um, every writer's room that I've ever been a part of uh, in theater or games or, you know, role-playing game stuff or comics, they all look like maps of crazy people's minds, right? And a really good strategy is, like you say, to get a big space, a big board, and to put the cards down and put the character's emotional states. And the important thing to think about if you're doing that is the state change. The character begins one way, how will they change? If they change, how will that change the story? If that's going to change the story in a way you don't like, then you have to change the original state that the character is in. So sometimes a hero, you think of them as a hero at the beginning of a story arc. And then you realize in order to get them to the end the way you want, they have to start maybe as a villain, right? So that the state change moves the story in the way that you want. Another thing I do when I'm writing is I'll just, and I'm sure a lot of writers do this, but I'll imagine um, a cool moment, like something that's awesome that I want to see on the page, that I want to see the artist draw. And then I'll work backwards from that. I'm like, okay, well, how am I going to get there? How am I going to get these characters to do that because that's great i want to get to that point and and so we also work that way as well yeah and comics as a visual medium it gives you that moment you know like you sent me a script recently george and i for the in the interest of full disclosure george and i are working now on a uh, a short uh, are we allowed to talk about this yeah sure okay so we're working on a uh, short ninja versus kaiju story for an anthology that uh, george is working on why don't you just tell people about it a little bit this will be their yeah, it's, it's set in the cover of darkness world. It's going to be released as a one shot this fall from <laughs> source point press. Um, so make sure you pick up the, the, uh, the six issue miniseries that uh, is coming out in January. It's uh, it's kind of like horror meets fantasy. Um, each issue has a standalone monster origin story. We've got vampires, uh, Viking werewolves, uh, a merman, uh, the Mummy, and a steampunk Atlantean Frankenstein. So we've reimagined all those monsters, but there's a heap more monsters and there's a bunch more characters coming into the story. And what I wanted to do was uh, create backstories for those characters as well. Because in the main series, those big five, they get half an issue each, a lot of story. And I wanted to expand on some of the, the other characters as well. And so... And uh, I'll just I'll reveal the whole lineup for issue one. This is uh this is a break here because I haven't uh, uh I haven't told anyone this before. Got, a scoop here on super pulp science. We've got an origin of our vampire story where he's uh he comes from uh, a line of uh, water elves and he becomes like our Count Orlock. That's uh written by myself and uh drawn by uh, Andy Belanger, who worked on Swamp Thing, Southern Cross, and uh He's currently doing his own Mother Trucker series, which is just killing it on Kickstarter. And then uh, the My Ninja story um, that where he runs into kaijus and it's the origin of this story because, you know, why not have ninjas in this in this crazy world as well? Illustrated by yourself, GMB Kamichuk. And lastly, in that one shot, we're going to have uh, a Bride of Frankenstein story, a steampunk Atlantean Frankenstein. And she's going around the world uh, toppling cities with her and, and her in our version it's her husband that she's re resurrected um, Victor Frankenstein and uh, yeah and so it's the two of them on a madcap adventure and that's written by my co-writer Chris Cam and illustrated by John Delaney of Simpsons and uh, Adventures in DC Universe uh, work yeah it's gonna be so fun and I will say this so we started on this um a sudden plug for your new book when we talked about how comics was a visual medium. And when you sent me that script, the thing that actually 
because I, I have a lot going on right now. I have a lot on my plate and it was going to be tricky to actually balance the time to accomplish it. But when I saw in your script that there was a giant crab monster, I couldn't not draw it. I was like, well, I have to say yes, because who else is going to let me draw a giant crab monster ravaging a city? Only George is going to let me do this. So I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to have to do this story. And how, who do they fight? Ninjas. It's going to be amazing. Yeah, so. there's ninjas and samurais in it. I know you love that stuff. So, so that's why I thought of you for that story. Yeah. So, you know, and that visual hook, you know, that can be a good way for a writer to reach out to artists if they know the kinds of things they're into. Right. I love drawing monsters. I never get to draw enough monsters. So being invited to work on Cover of Darkness with it is a book all about monsters is, you know, it's a bit of a thrill. You'll scream at ghastly ghouls and shiver at the doings of evil doctors. And you have some other great people on the lineup, which I guess we're not allowed to talk about yet, that are coming up. Yeah, he's shaking his head vehemently, but it's going to be, I think, a big deal when all when this comes out. And just four years ago, you said to yourself, I'm going to do this. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy how things come together. But I think it's really, the comic book business can be intimidating to get into, but I think it's like any other place. Like, you, you get jobs by relationships by knowing people and so i'm starting to work with some more uh, established artists a lot of my early books well i actually i got it right out the gate with ali garza <laughs> but that was through meeting john and, and having a relationship with him and then yeah just you know when you're at like if you're if you're thinking about making comic books just start doing it go to conventions sell your work there talk to other creators you know be a good person be people be someone that you know people want to be around and you know and be respectful of other people's time and you know, that sort of stuff and your earlier story of meeting john delaney seeking him out as a mentorship role someone who lived in your city who was making comics you didn't know him but that's who you have to ask is the people who have the jobs that you want you have to talk to them directly you can't hope they'll discover you right yeah. you have to go and introduce yourself to them and that is a good way forward in any industry as long as you're yeah. respectful about their time you got to be proactive right like making making comic books is like for a writer it's expensive to hire artists so you need to get after it you know like i've invested money into my books so i have to i have to sell them and you know so after that first convention, I was watching my cousin slap those cards. I was like, right, yeah, I can't just be sitting here twiddling my thumbs. I've got to stand up. I've got to look at people in the eye when they come up to my table. I've got to tell them with enthusiasm what my book's about and why I think they would like it. I can't just sit here. And I see so many people just sitting there. And I'm like, geez, you're, you're going to have a hard go here. And, you know, and I, it's really like doubly important because not only am I now paying for artist to, to illustrate my books now i'm paying for myself to travel around and i've been all around north america i'm doing 11 shows this year in a shortened 2021 season 2019 i did you know 18 shows so i'm really getting out there and and so i have to you know make these things work financially for for myself and my family to to continue doing this yeah because it's not um it's not easy because you as a person who is the front runner and owner of the IP has to put that money up front, has to put their money on the barrel head and take their chances. Um, how have you found that experience is, you know, has there been a, Oh shit, I really shouldn't have spent money on that one thing that you can share with our listeners. You're hysterical, Henry. It's just what I would have expected. No, I don't think you'll expect this Wilma. Oh, um, yeah, so I was really tempted to do like a lot of variant covers for some of my first issues. And it can be tempting because maybe you can land like a big artist that you're really excited to work with. And because uh, they'll agree to do a cover for you before they'll agree to work on uh, interiors. Um, and that can be tempting because it's like, oh, I've always wanted to work with that person. They're willing to work with me on this cover. Okay, I'll do it. And then you get it and it's awesome. And you're like, this is great. And then you're like, okay, I'll do it again and and again. And then it's like, wait a minute, this isn't adding up to anything I can really sell. Right. Um, like, so you have to be kind of mindful, like, hey, can I turn this into continuing to fund these projects? Because those big expensive covers can be um, 
maybe money, not maybe not the best investment. Having said that, though, one great investment is um, uh, we have six covers for Cover of Darkness by legendary Batman and Nightwing artist uh, Scott McDaniel, and they're awesome. And they're very collectible in that they're all the same layout. We have a big monster head, and they look angry, and they look awesome. And and then in the foreground, we have like a full body of, of one of our protagonists. And so we have six collectible covers like that. It's they're being offered as a as the B cover. So we have an A cover and a B cover um, available at your local comic book stores for Cover Darkness. And and I was really psyched to work with Scott McDaniel, big fan of his. And they're beautifully covered by Sanju Navangun. Um, he's a terrific colorist. Yeah, the uh, blood. What was it? Bloodhaven run that McDaniel did on. Uh... Nightwing, that was that was some stellar stuff. So I'm a little bit jealous that you have in doing your covers. So now you just had said that it can be tricky to find those cover artists and that maybe it's not worth it. And then in the next breath, you're like, but. So is it a bit of a gamble? Is that what you're basically saying? It's like you can never be sure? Yeah, you just, I guess you have to pick and choose how much you're going to spend on it because it can be tempting to spend a lot of money on those covers. And, uh, and you might not get the return on them. What happens to the original art of those covers? Are you doing this digitally or are they doing it, um, are they doing it traditionally? So with Scott, I got the originals and they're up in my office and they're up in Chris's, my co-writer's office and we love them. So, you know, <laughs> it's also a thing that's just part of our, part of our cool office. It motivates me. It inspires me to write more. So, there's also that part of the investment too. Right, just owning artwork is, uh, it can be a thrill. Okay, well, so one of the other things, one of the last things that we haven't spoken about, but you've mentioned a number of times is you have a co-author. So you have talked a bunch of different ways about how you collaborate with artists and how you um, get the best out of them and how you adjust your own scripting process uh, on their behalf and how bad you feel if you have to ask them for changes. But how is it for you to collaborate on individual issues with a co-writer and what advice might you offer to someone who wants to do that? Well, I guess my advice would be talk ahead of time before you go into a, a partnership with somebody. Make sure that your, your wants and desires for the series or the project lines up with what they want to do. You guys have to be equally committed or else there's going to be you know, fighting or problems right get a contract have have a business contract like how many people have lived with a roommate and that was like their best friend and then when that best friend is moving out they're not best friends anymore you know same thing with like making comics right you're this is this is a business that you're getting into so get that contract in place just so that everybody is on the same page and isn't going to you know uh not fulfill their obligations I wouldn't recommend doing like a massive story like I'm doing with Chris. Like that's craziness. And I knew it. I had read all that online saying, you know what? Don't do a, you know, a 12 issue or 18 issue story. Do like a one issue to start maybe like a four issue max, but don't do like a massive thing. If you're, if you're just starting out, just start small. Um, because it's crazy and like so much can go wrong like so <laughs> just start with one issue for your first book and if you're going to write with somebody um also be mindful of the story that they're trying to tell right be respectful like um so the way that we work is we each do our own first draft of our own characters and maybe a second draft and really kind of be happy with with what we've got and then we send it to the other one to edit and to and to work it and you know so, sometimes you get those notes back or sometimes they just make the changes straight to it and it's like oh you're killing me i love that and you took it out like why would you do that and then you're like you're having to like defend your work to your your co-writer and things like that so you can get those things so some some changes are easy like so, maybe maybe chris will use like come hither on one page and then she uses it like three pages later and it's like that's a lot of come hithering for one issue of a comic book, you know? So <laughs> you just, I'll, I'll just cut that out and be like, and I know her feelings aren't going to be hurt, especially if I say, well, you used it on the other page. And she's like, right. Yeah, no, that makes sense that you would get rid of that. But other changes, it's like, 
oh, that's that's really changing the story a lot. I wish you didn't do that. And it's like, okay, I'm sorry. Let's let's keep working on it and just just keeping the communication open too, right? Like if you don't like something that someone's changed, um, make sure that you tell them about it and that you communicate about it instead of like holding a grudge about it. Right. Well, a good practical piece of advice I find at the beginning of any project is you try to get everyone involved to write down what they really expect from it. And this can be like even tangentially, like I hope I'll get famous, whatever those things are, write them down, literally put them on a piece of paper. Because um, if you know what you're hungry for, you cannot be deceived. And so when you're talking about the actual work now of the story, if your goal is to become the most famous comic artist ever, ever born, you'll realize really quickly that this one issue of the comic ain't going to do it, right? So you're just going to have to work on the story because that's the only thing that this one issue of the comic can accomplish, right? And it helps to, uh, to change people's uh, expectations in the moment on the task at hand rather than some imagined success that is not in anyone's control. That's one thing that's been fun about Cover of Darkness was we knew we wanted to make this thing together. We started making it. We hoped to get it published, but we really had no idea as far as like how to go about that. You know, like this is, so it's like, how are we going to make this thing happen? And we just, we're like, well, we'll just keep doing it and we'll figure it out eventually. And we'll try and recoup costs at conventions, but we'll just keep going. And, and so we've been making the series for three years now and we're almost we're almost done the second mini series. So we've got a big head start on the publisher here. Like, so everything's going to come out on time for sure. But just seeing it happen has just been like so much fun, you know, and having, we actually had multiple publishing offers. So it was, it's fun to get out there and, and shop your book around in person and actually talk to people and have like them say, yeah, okay, I think we can do something with this. And, and it's really validating. To, to know that other people see your work and think we can, this company can make some money off of this property as well. So they have enough faith in it to, to publish it, which is which all the ultimate kind of stamp of approval, really. Right. If a person who didn't make it thinks that they could stand behind it to sell it is a big step. What about talking a little bit about that? You, you just sort of stepped over it when you said, hey, we made a book, then we got publishing offers. Tell me a little bit about the individual constituent parts of getting us to from I made a book, I kickstarted that book, I own the book, I have a co-creator on that book, a publisher now is publishing it. What happened in the comma that I put in that sentence? Uh, I was doing conventions. Honestly, just the 2019 getting out there, doing 18 shows in a year, talking about my book over and over and over again, going to bigger shows, New York City Comic Con, that's where... A lot of decision makers will be there. Um, so you can actually get in front of an editor in chief, possibly. Yeah, and and pitch them your book, getting really good at your elevator pitch so that you can describe your comic in 30 seconds. Cause nobody wants to talk to someone they don't know for five minutes. You've got a minute, maybe two minutes tops. So get in front of somebody that's a decision maker, give them a physical copy of your book and just pitch them, you know, for 30 seconds a minute and just you know, and yeah, I'd write my email address on the inside cover of the book and say, here, you know, shoot me an email if you like this and then ask them for their contact information if they're willing to give you that um, and follow up with them, you know, and don't be annoying. I My rule is kind of just email kind of once a week, you know, and just to kind of check in if, as long as the conversation is still going and uh, and yeah, just kind of keep at it, like really continue to do shows, continue to put yourself out there, continue to follow up with publishers and, and just keep selling your your book because they want to be part of a winning team too, right? Like if they see you're killing it and you're selling lots of books and they're like, hey, George knows what he's doing. Both of you gentlemen have done Kickstarters. Both of you have fulfilled those Kickstarters. George, you've done at least three. Justin, you did a big one and you have another one coming up. Tell me what you guys feel about Kickstarter fatigue. What about that feeling of putting all your energy, all your time for 30 days straight into something? What is that experience like for a person who's never done it before? I told you before, I didn't want you to read this crap. I never saw such rotten crap in my life. Where do you get this shit? Yeah, it can be relentless. Like I really try and 
get out there and promote my Kickstarters on podcasts, on YouTube shows. I post every day about it. For my early Kickstarters, when I was first getting started out, I was messaging like every person I knew on Facebook directly, uh, like and giving them the hard sell, like, hey man, do you remember when I made that mixtape back in high school? Can you back my comic, please? Like just that kind of urgency to to get a book out so it can be absolutely exhausting trying to do it and then even just fulfilling it takes a, a decent amount of time to you know get your books printed and 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 then stuff in envelopes and sometimes you can offer lots of different things so each envelope can be different so yeah it's, it's a ton of work and, and also I try and be mindful of my audience too I don't want to hit them up with too many kickstarters because uh, I, I want to be respectful of their money and and their uh, enjoyment of my work so I think like I, I try and keep it to one a year at this point in my career what was the long dark tea time of your soul Justin for the kickstarter <laughs> So I, I found it a little overwhelming because I had planned to kind of finish up the book like immediately after the Kickstarter wrapped. So the, the Kickstarter was all of September and the book was due uh, like mid-October. And so I assumed I was going to be able to run the Kickstarter campaign um, because all the work was done. It was all ready to launch. So I figured I was going to be able to like do the Kickstarter campaign and then also finish my last couple of pages of the graphic novel. And it just turned out like the mental uh, fatigue of posting a couple times a day, doing those phone interviews. And I did a couple podcasts and I was just posting on so many different social media platforms multiple times. And usually like I, I kind of get fatigue of like, you know, Instagram and Facebook and I just step away. But now I had this obligation to really push, push, push. And so I felt this constant, like, am I bugging people? Am I posting too much? Am I like forcing this down people's throats? But then that's also what you kind of need to be doing. So I just found like it was kind of, it was, you know, the last round of, of work for the book. And now suddenly I had this, this whole new workload that I was kind of unfamiliar with. I've never had to push anything to this degree this hard before. Um, so it really, it kind of, yeah, took me, took me a little off guard how mentally draining it was on top of finishing a book. Right. So I always recommend like to anybody who asks now is that month that you're doing the Kickstarter campaign, don't have anything else planned out in that month other than the campaign, because it really is uh, a job for that month. And, and to remember that new experiences create some hesitations. Hesitations are often a source of stress. Stress makes mm -hmm. normal days feel longer. And so now if you compound that by 30 days straight with no rest, yeah. right, you can be quite burned out by the end of that. And then at the end of it, you now have to fulfill everything. I, yeah, we at least did that part right. I think uh, Sam Biko, who has done a couple big Kickstarters before, recommended like once give yourselves a lot of leeway of when the books needed to ship out. So I did at least have like a good amount of time from when the, the book went to printers and the Kickstarter campaign ended. I had like a couple of weeks to kind of collect myself again before I needed to start shipping off 560 books or whatever it was. So that was kind of nice. Um, I was one of your backers um, of Dragon oh, Nanny. I, I have a book. Um, what a, <laughs> it's just absolutely beautiful. And not just the artwork, but also the printing quality and the and the hardcover and the, it's it's a great book. Yeah, so it's yeah. Shout it. out to Friesen Printing here in Altona that did just an amazing job on that book and uh, delivered it in a timely fashion during a time when almost nothing was happening in a timely fashion. I think that's bears uh, bears repeating. Um, I'll also say something about the outside. You know, I was just um, in a supportive role on on the Dragon Nanny Kickstarter, Justin. I use you to vent a lot, right? Yeah. And so I would answer a lot of questions. I found myself, you know, I'm a little bit older than the two of you guys. And so the demographic that I reach is also a little bit older. And so there was an enormous number of people when I would post the Kickstarter of Dragon Nanny as launch that responded, what is a Kickstarter? How does a Kickstarter work? Is this a store? Is this, you know, like they just, you should not take for granted that everyone understands what that means. And I felt myself very obligated to be like information guy to a generation of people that wanted to show up and support the book, but 
they're like, so I'm pre-ordering this book. Like, well, you're a backer. So that means that I'll get it in a couple of days. No, it means we haven't printed it yet. You know, like all of these kinds of things you had to explain to people that have been trained by Amazon and big box store shipping that once I order something, I get it in a few days and the shipping is free. Right. I had some weird situations with like friends and family calling me thinking that it's like a GoFundMe page and asking me like, are you okay? <laughs> you know, what's oh, going on? They thought like, it was like an emergency situation. Yeah, And I'm like, no, this is something I want to create. And I'm offering you a, a product. Uh, if you want to, if you want to support me, come and come and back the book and, you know, and yeah, not everyone gets the concept that, that this is your, this is a creative project that they're helping to finance and, and make happen. My first exposure to Kickstarter was actually not through comics, but through uh, Veronica Mars. Um, they they did a, kick, right. a Kickstarter fund uh, campaign to fund the movie, and I was like, I love that show, and that was the first time I'd ever heard about Kickstarter. And I was like, mm -hmm. Yeah, let's let's make this thing happen. And you know, I, I threw my hundred bucks down. I'm like, Let's make this movie, man! Like, this is gonna be awesome. Um, was it so, awesome? Was it a good movie in the end? It's it solid. I like the series that came up afterwards. So it just recently came out. It was kind of like a like a, a fourth season. And so it came out after the movie. That was. That was even better. My first experience with Kickstarter was hearing um, an artist that I follow was on a podcast talking about the the horrible experience he had on Kickstarter. Because this is back in the day where you had to calculate your own shipping. You had to figure out what the shipping would be. And this was like his his first Kickstarter. And I think he was asking for five dollars $7,000. And he ended up getting like $70,000. It was like one of the biggest graphic novel Kickstarters at that time. And by the time it was done, he was like, he had burnt through a relationship and he had to take out a loan to like fulfill all the shipping. Like it, it ended up like killing him. He just, yeah, he was, he was not prepared for the amount of success that he got out of it. And then it ended up because just the way the math worked, it cost him money instead of made him money. Well, and, and people misunderstand also, one thing I found myself educating folks on was that they misunderstand that the money arriving in Kickstarter doesn't go immediately into your bank account. That's the money for the total project. That's where the printing and the shipping and everything comes out of that amount. There's an, it, a staggering number of people who don't realize that someone who raises, say, a million dollars on Kickstarter didn't just win the lottery. They might have $900,000 of production costs right. as a result of that. Right. And so people, I think we're going to see in the next few years, a, a more educated kickstarting community, a more educated, supportive community that really gets what's going on. You know, it's new for everybody. Well, that's and, probably what George was saying earlier about people not fulfilling is they get this chunk of money and realize they need 130 percent of that to actually make whatever they promised happen and just run. Yeah. Like instead of going into debt, trying to fulfill it, they just cut and run. Yeah, well, that's the thing is like your printing costs, especially can be huge. If you're only ordering like 100 books, well, you might be paying $10 a book, you know, if you're if so it's, that can be a big. So if you sell your comic for $10, you know, and especially if you didn't factor in for proper shipping, you can be underwater on that thing really, really quick. And that's not even like if you're a writer kickstarting your book and you've, and you were hoping to pay your artist out of that, like right. it's not going to happen. That's why comic books on Kickstarter are usually more money than the $4 that you might get at a store, but you're getting something that is, you know, an original property and a first printing of this series, right? Like, you know, two of the three books that Kickstarted are now with publishers. So that's kind of cool for the people who backed it back then to have those original versions of that series. And yeah, they're literally what did the publishers think of the fact that it was Kickstarter, the fact that it had already been released in a, in a fashion? Well, I don't think it was a hesitation for them because they believe in the product. They they have a lot bigger plans for it. And I'd only Kickstarted the first issue. I hadn't Kickstarted the okay. whole series. So there's still a lot more story that people haven't had a chance to read. Let's take a moment and give a shout out to those early people who, who came in and have backed us right from the very beginning. Um, George, I know you have a special person in your life who's just there every single time. Why don't you give them a shout out here? Oh, uh, my cousin DJ, um, he has showed up for every book I've put out. He backs it hard and he lives like right next door to me. So he, 
he knows like I just give it to him but he still just wants to show that support and enthusiasm for my work and I just I think that's awesome and that's in a way you know kind of the magic of the era that we're in where people can self-produce their projects if you look at a project you know like whatever some big spider-man book that they're they're promoting right now they're going to print a million of those even if you run out and get it and slab it and get it at a 9.9 it ain't rare the rare book is george's book that there's only a few thousand of right or dragon annie that there's only a few thousand of if it becomes something after that if that property blows up after that, you actually have a real collectible rare item, not one that was just marketed as a collectible, but actually is rare. And I think that that is what a lot of speculators are finding in Kickstarter, that it's a really low amount of money, 10 or 15 bucks to back a thing they'd never heard of. But if it strikes, they have one of only a few hundred or a few thousand of these objects that will ever exist ever. You know, and I think that that also is appealing to some people. And every now and then you get a book that's amazing. You know, like it just blows your mind that a thing like that could could have existed. You see that crap? All that horror crap? Things coming out of crates and eating people? Dead people coming back to life? People turning into weeds for Christ's sake? Uh, I find it just super cool that like people are making awesome stuff. Like, you know, before I was in this world, I was just kind of going about my life and I always thought everything that was, you know, neat and magical was happening in like Los Angeles, but no, there's cool stuff happening in every town. Like even small cities, like where I live in, there's people working on like huge properties that, you know, and you, you might not be aware of that, but like there's people everywhere doing awesome stuff. Yeah. Like Justin and I work at the studio uh, downtown Winnipeg here in the exchange and two, three floors down, you know, two big Netflix movies were being produced like animated things and you wouldn't know it, you know, the animators are out on their smoke break in the afternoon and it's just like a regular working Joe's doing their thing. And then the Netflix movie launches and it's a, you know, big success and everyone is like, Oh yeah, they made that two floors down here in Winnipeg, you know, and they're just, you know, they're not, nobody's special. We're just all pushing that boulder to the top of the hill like Sisyphus. And some days it rolls down on top of you and some days it gets over the top. You know, it's so great that way. Okay, you two gentlemen who have both uh, been in the salt mines for a while. Justin has started doing shows very much like you, George, where he had a career, he had a job, he had another life path. And then one day he just said, no, I'm going to do some things myself for myself. And followers of the podcast or followers of Chasing Artwork know that story. Tell us your story a little bit, George, of how you got from where you were to where you are now. Well, I always loved comic books. Ever since I was a little kid, I had a copy of How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way by John Buscema. And I wore that book out just at the kitchen table. And I grew up watching uh, X-Men and Batman, the animated series. And I always loved comics. I'd go to the comic book store every Wednesday as a kid. And I love that stuff. And I, and if you would ask 10 year old George, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, I would have said, I want to be a comic book artist. I want to, I want to work in comics. And, uh, as I got older, I got distracted with girls in high school. Not that I was really getting any girlfriends, but I, I, I stopped working on my art. I didn't, think that this was a career path that I knew how to do. I was really nervous about putting myself out there and fear of rejection and all that sort of stuff. And I just stopped and I just got like a regular job working as a caregiver, uh, supporting adults with developmental disabilities. Let me just pause there. You stopped making superhero books and just became one instead. I think it bears, bears pointing out. Thank you. That's really kind. Yes, but it wasn't until I was in like a horrific car accident that it really kind of put life in perspective to me that let's let's try and do these things I want to do and not be afraid of, you know, am I just going to be afraid my whole life? Like, that's what I really said to myself. Like, am I or am I actually going to put myself out there and try and make these things happen? And it's been it's been pretty awesome ever since, like just just deciding to do it, um, spending some time on my scripts. I spent six months writing my first my first comic book series of six issues. And then I sat down to draw it and I noticed that my art skills had completely eroded to nothing. And I just, I was like, okay, I'm going to need professional help on that front. But making comics made me happy. Selling comics made me happy, which is really lucky combination for myself personally, to be able to, to enjoy both aspects of the business. And, uh, 
I've just been having success kind of making one story after another and, and, and starting to find an audience and starting to find homes with publishing companies and things like that. So it, it's just, uh, just deciding to do it was really the hardest. That was, that took me 35 years, you know, <laughs> um, actually, you know, having some success has taken me three years. But just beginning is the hardest part. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, th- I think our listeners would love to hear like you as a writer, how did you find that first artist to work on your your project because I think that's something that a lot of writers starting out that want to make comics the big hurdle is okay like who do I get to draw my comic well my recommendation is a little different than my journey Um, (laughs) so my recommendation is to go out on Instagram on DeviantArt look for artists that you think are really talented try and be objective uh, and and look at their sequential work if, or request them to send you some of that and, and work with somebody that you can afford that's kind of at your level as far as like experience, as far as um, you know, how many books have they done, that sort of thing. Because a, a big name artist is most likely not gonna wanna work with a, with a newbie writer and, and just find somebody and start jamming and, and just keep it to like one issue, um, you know, just, just Put out a one shot and, and see what what happens and and enjoy that experience of working with another with another person and making something together that would be my advice my journey was actually uh reaching out to uh the only kind of local comic book creator in my city um his name is john delaney and uh i didn't know him he had no social media presence at all and I, I went and I found him at uh, an art gallery. He had a show. I asked the curator of the art gallery, hey, can I get John's email? And they just gave it to me, which I don't think they were supposed to do. And, uh, and then I contacted John. I sent him my script. He read it. I had been working on it for six months. He said it was an excellent script and it's something that he wanted to be a part of. And he brought me on to his comic book company, um, called Comic Stream. He hired me as an associate editor, and he set me up with the uh, incredible Ali Garza, who's worked on Teen Titans and Supergirl, to illustrate my very first comic. So I really lucked out and hit a home run. Um, so not necessarily what I advise, because it's hard to recommend someone hit a home run right out the gate, but um, that was my path. Well, you hit a home run the same way that professionals hit home runs. They practice for six months, which is what you did on your script. Right. You worked hard and then you showed up with the script. You didn't say, hey, I want to make comics. Now what? Right. Which is Justin and I have dealt with that a lot where you show up and they're like, oh, you make books. I have a great idea for a book. Do you want to work together? You know, it's not just a book. It's a seven book series. And every graphic novel is at least 100 pages. That's right. There's <laughs> I like ambition. But I also like realism. Um, and so those two things together, ambition and realism, can, can bake together into a, a delicious uh, recipe. Dan, don't be too hard on him. All the kids are him. My boy isn't all the kids. One thing that you've done, Greg, is you've invited me to be part of this writer's group. And we meet on, and we, and we tell scary stories together. And we just throw out ideas. And you said, you know, we as writers, we all recognize that the idea isn't really as important as the work that it takes to develop that idea and make it into something. And so we sit around and we throw around great ideas. Some of the ideas that come up in those those meetings are awesome. And, you know, I'm totally cool with it because it's like, that doesn't mean anything. A cool idea is like, everyone's got a cool idea. It's, it's actually right. developing and working to make it into something is what matters. Yeah, holding back. And so for the dear listener, we've mentioned it a few times. I do a thing called 13 Horrors, where on the 13th of every month, an hour before midnight, I get a bunch of writers together. Or not necessarily writers, just creative people in general. And we try in one hour, by the stroke of midnight, to complete a a treatment of a story. Uh, Usually a movie. We try to make a horror movie, but not always. And what you find in that pressure cooker environment is that holding back whatever you think your good idea is, like, oh, that one should be mine, is ridiculous. You become the dead weight in the room. And so you just throw the best ideas you've got and they either rise or fall naturally in that environment. And sometimes it hangs together and makes a great story and sometimes it doesn't. But 
in the end, it's the process. It's like practicing. We're running our marathons. We're getting together and we're lifting weights together with our minds on stories, you know, and that's basically the reason why I like to do it. Um, a few of those projects have gone on and spun in different ways to be either short comic projects of mine or uh, some short films and other people have gone and made comics and short stories with them. And even when we compare them after, they're so different because we're just starting with that idea. But then when you go away to do the work, you could almost not know, you couldn't tell that they started in that same meeting because you're the secret ingredient in the book that you're making. And so through that lens of you, it comes into a different focus. And so you should share your ideas as often as you can, because, you know, it's going to make you better at sharing ideas, which is what this job is all about. I but find that so crazy when you talk to other creative people and they'll be like, yeah, they stole my idea. I'm like, really? Did they? Like, okay, you had an idea and now that something similar came out, but did they actually see your script or was this just an, a, a thought that you had? Because sometimes people have the same thought. Yeah. I, remember, <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, I had drew a, a gremlin with wings and this was before Gremlins 2 came out. And then when that came out in the movie, George, they stole your idea. Wait a minute, what's going on here? Who's in my, who's coming in my bedroom and seeing what I'm drawing here? I was like, (laughs) right. And that's kind of how I feel when like people talk about other people stealing their ideas. I'm like, unless they saw your script and really worked on it, you know, did they really steal it? I don't know. Well, I think so much of it is the development. You can't steal an idea, but you can steal a finished product. So if, if someone says to me like, oh, that, you know, and I've, we've all been in these conversations in comic book land or in book land or in, in game land where someone says, oh, that was an idea I had already. I usually ask the follow-up question. I will say, oh, really? Amazing. Show me that book. Oh, well, I never made the book, but I, I talked to them. About, okay. So you had an idea, but the thousands of hours that it took to make the book, someone else put in and you didn't. I have a hard time finding sympathy for someone who says, oh, they stole my idea. Someone who has a book published and then a movie comes out with an identical plot and main beats. And then they say, someone clearly read my book and then just didn't credit me. We see that all the time and they have a right to be angry, right? But uh, there's a difference between someone who made a thing and someone borrowed from it and someone who had an idea and never did anything with it. So if you're a listener, and you have an idea, do something with it because then, and only then, then you can big, complain. Yeah. Hollywood bigwood can then steal it. And then you can complain. Yes. Right. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for sharing all your ideas and your thoughts about making things and books and your journey through comics. George, if someone wants to find you and support the stuff that you're doing, where should they go and what should they do? Uh, I'm on Instagram at comic book, George. Um, and Cover Darkness, which is like Game of Thrones meets the Universal Monsters. It's got vampires, Viking werewolves, the mummy, creature from the Black Lagoon, and a steampunk Atlantean Frankenstein, all in a fantasy world with like goblins, orcs, and dragons. It's totally bananas. It's a six-issue miniseries out from SourcePoint Press. It's coming out into stores in January. You need to go into your store or give them a call and say, hey, add that book to my pull list. Bring this comic in for me. Cover of Darkness from SourcePoint Press. Amazing. Thanks so much, guys. I am Gregory Kamichuk, encouraging you to join the fight and make comics.